Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we are joined by equity research analysts Robert Reynolds and Claire Fleming, who break down what's shaping the industrials and materials sectors and what's on their radar as 2023 comes to an end. Robert, who focuses on the industrial space, says high rates continue to have a major impact. Major themes include inventory restocking, government spending, and the pace of energy transition. Port and auto strikes are also having significant impacts on industrials. He adds services and airlines have been successful this year, but there are concerns of how long leisure travel will be sustainable. Claire focuses on materials, which includes copper and diversified mining companies, agriculture and packaging. Claire highlights some macro themes affecting packaging. She says historically it's been one of the most defensive subsectors, given that demand tends to be more stable for consumer products. However, the destocking of physical goods trend is negatively impacting the demand for packaging. She says we could see organic growth rates improve from companies working through the related impacts of destocking. This podcast was recorded on November 17th. 2023. Welcome to you both. Great to see you again. Thanks for having us. Glad that you could join us here. Let's set the stage in terms of what you do, and then we'll go into the macro a little bit. So mentioned industrials, but broaden it out for us a little bit, Bobby. Sure. So Canadian industrials is my focus. So the largest pieces of that would be transportation equities. So the railroads and trucking companies, there's a large waste management uh, sector in Canada. You've got airlines, capital goods companies, information services. It's a really diverse sector, lots of idiosyncratic opportunities. And so it's one that I really enjoy covering. And the Fidelity funds over the years have benefited from finding some long-term winners. in. Fantastic. Okay, well, we'll touch on, on all of those areas in a second. And Claire, the material sector is uh, part of the living, breathing part of the Canadian <laughs> landscape. Take us through what you follow. In my role as a research analyst on the team, I'm focused on Canadian materials excluding gold. Uh, so within that sector assignment, it is a very broad group of sub-industries. There's some of the copper and diversified mining companies. There's chemicals, um, forest products like lumber producers, steel, agriculture, um, and some packaging-related names as well. So there's a lot of broad themes, in fact, in those different groups within my coverage. Absolutely, from packaging through to the lumber side of things. Um, so the macro story, we all know at this point, and, and sort of the massive waves we've been through. Here we sit with rates high, absolutely high, compared to where we were a year ago, two years ago. Um, broadly, what has this meant? Uh, it's been quick And what have you noticed quick and perhaps slow, Bobby, first of all? So one of the biggest themes in the Canadian industrial space has been this inventory destocking that's been going on now for over a year. And really what happened was retailers in 2022 were planning for a continuation of the boom times and demand for for customers for everything goods. And really two things have happened. One is higher rates have bitten consumers' discretionary budgets and also... Um, there's been a shift in preferences spending on services versus goods as COVID restrictions have eased. And so all of these large retailers found themselves with too much inventory and they've had to destock over the last year. And that's really hurt the transportation market. So railroads, trucking companies, and really it, it looks now like the destocking tailwinds are coming to an end. So now freight demand is more following just underlying demand, but 
One of the issues is there's still too much capacity for freight, especially in the trucking market, which has some knock-on impacts in other freight markets. And so it's the, the debate now is, do we see a restock at some point or does the economy go in, into an actual recession and you get you know another bottom falling out in the freight market? So that's one of the key themes. You know, the other theme is government spending, and which has been extremely robust on the back of stimulus bills in the U.S., in addition to countries like Canada and in Europe following up with their own competitive stimulus measures. And so, you know, maybe that debate shifts to how sustainable is that if governments are still have large deficits and need to finance those, can they continue to spend on some of these infrastructure projects at the same level that they're currently are doing. So those are some of the, the major things happening. Uh, which government has more capacity to spend broadly in terms of the deficit story, Canada or the U.S.? Counterintuitively, perhaps, Canada looks like it's in a better fiscal situation now versus the United States from a budget deficit perspective and from a, a debt as a percentage of GDP perspective and, and where that's going. Okay. Um, Currently, though, the U.S. has committed to spend more for the next couple of years. So there's probably more tailwinds looking a year or two out. But in terms of who has a larger structural issue in their current spending, the U.S. is a bigger concern. Yeah, that is a bit counterintuitive, just in terms of headlines and what you read. Claire, the rate story, the inflation story, how has this, where we are now, sort of come in? And maybe maybe how is it different, perhaps, to the story that we were talking to you about just a few months back, here we are mm-hmm. at 5% rate. It seems like a lot changed in my sector over the past few months. And I think my comments will maybe build on some of what Bobby mentioned about how destocking is impacting the industrials and how that reads through to my space. And as well, just how higher rates might be impacting demand for some of the key end markets that support the commodities I cover. So, so the commodities mm-hmm. going into what, for instance, in terms of end demand? I think and demand, maybe starting with uh, just how that impact, higher rates are impacting the pace of the energy transition is a key theme that's coming up um, within my sector. If you think of a commodity like copper, uh, I think in past Fidelity Connects webcast, we've talked about um, how the energy transition and the role of things like renewables, whether that's wind or solar or electric vehicles as well, help to support some of those longer term um, demand trends for those commodities compared to past cycles. And I think we still assume that that'll be a key driver of demand over the longer term, but just the pace of that might be a bit slower if we see rates stay higher for longer. If you think about, um, if you're a renewable developer uh, making the decision about um, whether you're going to build more solar capacity, if right. interest rates are high, maybe it's tougher for you to get a return on that project or raise the capital that you would need in order to build that. Or you think about um, the role of electric vehicles in the economy. If you're a consumer under pressure from higher interest rates, whether that's your mortgage or other debt that puts pressure on your budget, maybe that puts off some of the demand from electric vehicles. So I think that's been a key um, debate or topic that's been coming up in my sector in response to higher rates. That's fascinating. Who's the buyer of commodities in the world right now? Is it China? I think... uh, There's very diversified end markets for the commodities that I cover, but uh, there is still a lot of China exposure. It'd be close to 50% for commodities like copper, um, as well as commodity chemicals. Um, That's an area where a lot of demand is coming from China. And I think that's a key differentiator for Canadian materials, having that more China-related 
um, and market exposure compared to some of the other cyclical sectors within North America that might have more exposure primarily to Western economies. Because Western economies have stimulated and now need to pull back or, and well, and they're dealing with rates because China never really did stimulate, not in the way that we did. Yes. And I think that's an interesting difference in this cycle compared to past cycles um, that might lead to some opportunities, just realizing that some of these economies are in very different points of their monetary um, or economic cycles, thinking that obviously a risk for some of the um, demand or end markets that are more boost in North America in response to higher rates are at a very different um, point from China, where the recovery from COVID's maybe been a bit slower than some people might have initially expected, and demand's already on a relatively low base. Um, so so, room this, to grow, so there's potentially room to grow on a relative basis um, for some of those um, commodities or companies within my coverage group that might have more uh, China exposure relative to North America. Fascinating. It's just the underneath piece of it all. In the industrials, Bobby, let's sort of choose some of them. So you mentioned certainly where retailers, the consumer might be, what that impacts within industrials. But on the services side, if 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 we are spending money on services, that does affect aerospace. I mean, it it affects going on holiday. How how do you see different pieces of the industrial area uh, panning out right now? So services and airlines have had a great year from a demand perspective. And you've seen um, some of the airlines print record profits earlier this year. Um, Now the concern has shifted to, is that leisure travel demand sustainable as higher rates bite, where the business traveler has not come back and is arguably permanently impaired versus how much we were traveling in 2019. I think most airlines talk about still 25% below 2019 levels for business travel, probably not returning because Mm. the companies that I talk to talk about anything trying to scale back on travel budgets to offset maybe some of the cost pressures they see elsewhere. So airlines, great year, a little bit cloudier outlook, a lot of cost pressures. There's been, you know, there's unions in the airline sector that have been talking about potential strike action in Canada and in the U.S. There were large union settlements. And so it's a bit of a mixed picture on some of the, the industrial services areas. And whereas the, the goods demand came off, but it's it sort of stabilized where it is. I mean, you've seen, you've seen the hit to, to goods in, in some cases and with interest rates coming off the boil a little bit. It, it'll be interesting to see if the mix between goods and services sort of stabilizes hmm. here rather than continues to go in the services. That's fascinating. I, I'll just because you mentioned sort of labor potential strike action with it, just broaden that out because of course we've seen it across mm. the industrial space all, all over North America and other parts of the world. Where else has it affected the labor issues? Um, what you cover? So I could point to two very well known examples. You've got the the port strikes that impacted Canada's West Coast ports in the summer, and actually, although it was resolved in July. The ports are still feeling the hangover today because shipping lines saw the disruption, didn't like it, and decided to divert volumes to other ports in the U.S. West Coast. And so far, those volumes have not come back to Canadian ports. So, hmm. it, it, Will it, they? Potentially, there's a cost advantage to import through Canada to move goods into certain areas of the United States. But it's a debate in the market right now for some of the companies that benefit from moving those goods from the Canadian ports to the U.S. Midwest, 
might create opportunity if they do come back. But it goes to show it's not just the strike time. There, there can be a hangover from these impacts. And it does go to show it, it can hurt the credibility of Canada when you have these things happen. The other one I point to is the, the auto strikes, right, which mm-hmm. should look like they're finally resolved. But potential issues there around the labor competitiveness of some of the big three automakers. And there are industrial companies that would be the automakers or large customers of them. If there's share loss over the long term for them, that can have implications for some of the the customers or the, the companies that sell into the Detroit automakers. So lots of you know labor issues to think through in this market. And and there is a knock on ultimately to the demand for commodities then if if is that is that part of the end user story for you? Right. I think there are definitely some read-throughs from what Bobby mentioned as well, just about some of the logistics challenges and ports. If you think about from the Canadian uh, commodities like potash or metallurgical coal, um, those commodities often rely on those ports on the West Coast to get their products to those um, end customers. So when there are logistics challenges like that, on the export um, that can, side, on the export side yeah. that can impact um, some of the costs that um, these companies are incurring in order to get their products out. So that was a theme that came up sometimes in the most recent um, earnings reports that were coming through in the past few weeks. Let's okay. Well, let's let's go to earnings and discussing with companies. Both of you spend an awful lot of time having these discussions. Um, is it is it sort of conference earnings? Well, it's earnings always for you. But are you having a lot of conversations right now? Or is that later? I know you've had a bunch of conversations. I'll ask you just one second, Bobby. Um, but what are you finding company management is saying at this point on earnings calls and otherwise? Right. It has been a busy couple of weeks moving through the Canadian earnings season. But I think um, where some of our conversations have really focused on with companies over the past few weeks is related to um, geopolitical situations. And obviously, these are always very complex and headlines. challenging. Yeah. But I think this is a great area where having those relationships with companies and the scale that we do and just the depth of our team can really add value. Um, For example, um, sometimes when these geopolitical headlines come up, um, there's, um, as I said, there's always imperfect information, but just being able to get company management on calls and ask clarifying or follow-up questions um, that we have at the time and being able to leverage different departments within our team. I have a counterpart in our UK office, Hosanna, who's a fixed income research analyst, uh, who's really helpful on some of the calls with companies in my sector, just to understand balance sheet risks and have a different perspective. Um, given that it's a very global sector, sometimes um, emerging markets PMs or um, portfolio managers with different styles will be on these calls. And I think just having that depth of expertise and different perspectives mm-hmm. um, is really helpful in some of these volatile situations that come up for companies in my coverage group. So is that what you, because in a lot of mines and, and, and other other ways that you, you take commodities from, from the earth um, are in different places around the globe. Uh, we know this. What about sort of this, this friendshoring, nearshoring debate? What do you do with, it would be safer if the mine was just in back or if it was in, I don't know, the US. I mean, that's not always realistic. So when something in the headlines kind of comes to the fore, what what are sort of your one, two, threes? Who, where do you pull information from? The mind can't be moved. It is where it is. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Um, so I think in those situations, as I mentioned, it is always helpful after calls with companies or when headlines come out, just to be able to discuss them with other colleagues, get yeah. other perspectives okay. and make sure we're not missing anything. Um, but I think it is an interesting 
longer term theme when we all of these geopolitical risks come up. As you mentioned, you can't move existing mines, um, but maybe that raises questions about where that longer term capacity growth in the industry will come from or um, the potential timing of those decisions if companies feel that they want to wait until they have that policy visibility um, prior to committing, cap- to committing capital um, for new capacity expansions. So it does hmm. um, maybe create some longer term implications as well beyond the shorter term news flow, just about the pace of capacity growth that we might see for certain commodities, um, just based on some of those geopolitical risks or headlines that come up. Um, Bobby, what, what do you find company management is saying? Have you been in touch with them, obviously through earnings seasons, but mm-hmm. that and beyond? Yeah, so typical fidelity analyst process during an earnings season would be to set up follow-up calls with management teams of every company of importance to us. Um, And then just this past week, I had over 15 meetings at a large industrial conference in Toronto, as well as uh, through a few other one-on-one calls I'd set up. And say the general tone amongst the industrials I'm talking to is cautious optimism as it relates to 2024. I think management was a lot more concerned this time a year ago. As you remember, the, the market was also at a much lower level as there were a lot of calls for 2023 recession. Now we've seen those calls pushed out in many cases into 2024. But the fact that the calls didn't come through for 23, I think has given a lot of these management teams a little bit more optimism in terms of how they're planning for next year. And that's a function of really the support of government spending environment that they see maybe some of the headwinds on the destocking side. If you're a freight company coming to a close, um, you know, seeing the consumer being able to, to manage through these higher interest rates in particular in the United States, where a lot of their um, interest rate exposure is very long dated because of the mortgage market there. Right. And so, yeah, it's people. And then from the labor front, they're really, aren't very many companies laying people off. If anything, most of them are still trying to grow. And despite trying to grow, they, they're talking about wage inflation easing a little bit. It's easier to hire people. So sort of everything, if you're, if you're a central banker, you want to hear is some of the things that we're hearing, wow. at least from the industrial company. Isn't that interesting? And, and um, what are the caveats for 2024? Is, is it still you know, a, a potential recession? I, I guess what would that mean look like for sort of the, well, for everything within it, but certainly the demand? It's, it still hasn't been a long time since interest rates were jacked up from 0% to 5%. And everybody talks about the long and variable lags for how that impacts the economy. There's still a significant headwind, especially in Canada, to disposable personal income as mortgages reset and people have to figure out, how do I pay for my house and where else can I cut? And so... I think the major concern is still the lag impact of interest rates. There's concern around the U.S. presidential cycle and what that could mean for the outlook or just general confidence if there's a lot of noise there. And then there's always the geopolitical concerns around what if the conflict in the Middle East expands and creates a significant spike in the oil price because that's a significant headwind on the Western consumer if oil goes up. So fact that oil's come off in the last few weeks, probably been one of the assists to the market that we've seen. That's surprising to you? Well, I'm not our oil I analyst, know you're not, so but I just thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah. Is it surprising to me? Um, hard for me to comment. Claire? 
Yeah. I think I can comment. There are definitely some read-throughs from the energy markets as well in my coverage group, especially um, when it comes to natural gas, given that a lot of commodity chemicals um, or even things like a nitrogen fertilizer, um, that's something that's relevant to my coverage group. They've actually benefited from some of the relatively lower North American natural gas costs over the past few years um, relative to what we've seen in Europe or other markets, um, whether that's through um, Europe or other markets having higher costs from some of the supply um, disruptions or as well if any capacity gets curtailed. Um, so it's something we're continuing to monitor just given that it can impact the relative um, positioning or margins of some of the North American um, companies in my coverage group um, that have exposure uh, to U.S. natural gas. Um, take us through the packaging, uh, the areas that you that you follow, and, and what's affecting that right now. I, I, I'm curious the different tentacles that come into um, affecting that. Maybe it's just macro. What what, mm-hmm. what, do you, what can you tell us? I think within my coverage group, packaging has historically been one of the most defensive. Right. Um, subsectors, just given that demand often tends to be more stable for things like consumer products compared to the breadth of um, and markets for other commodities within my coverage group. I think a really interesting theme, though, for that space has been the destocking of physical goods that Bobby mentioned earlier that's been impacting the industrials, where so many retailers or distributors had ordered a lot of physical goods. Um, during the period where there were so many challenges with supply chains and perhaps overordered, um, there was a slowing demand environment, um, which has negatively impacted some of the demand for packaging as retailers work through some of those excess inventories. Um, but we are starting to see um, companies starting to lap those impacts. I think it was around Q4 of last year that we started to see some of those um, challenges mentioned by companies in the packaging space about how destocking was impacting demand, whether that's for consumer goods. Um, you think of the packaging on things so um, that might go into Walmart or a Canadian <laughs> Tire. Uh, so but I think that as we start to lap some of those in packaging subsector, you could start to see organic growth rates improve, hmm. um, just given that it did take a while uh, for companies to work through some of those um, destocking-related impacts. In terms of, of labor issues, have have we seen that sort of in the commodity side of things? I mean, are, are you you see them in the industrials and that may have a read through. But is there the wages go up everywhere? What's it look like in the material sector? I, wage growth. Wage growth. Uh, I would agree with Bobby's comments that we are starting to see some companies comment on improving availability of workers um, as well as maybe some moderating moderating growth in the rates of wage growth compared to what we might have seen in some periods um, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does vary a lot by market. And okay. I think it'll be interesting to see how this develops because some of those, um, especially um, related to copper, one of the key challenges to um, supply and operating rates over the past few years was just worker productivity and availability. As you can imagine, it's really tough to operate a mine at full rates during COVID when you're dealing with absenteeism or other challenges. Um, And that maybe caused the market to be slightly tighter than some people expected because it was really tough to To operate at full rates when you're dealing with some of those challenges in the workforce. So um, we are starting to see um, the availability of workers improve in some regions, um, but to be seen yet if we could, how quickly things return to fully normalized. Um, operating rates within certain industries. Fascinating, the labor element of, of all of this. Um, 
Take us to the manufacturing of, of semis, if, if you don't mind. This is a big part of the industrial manufacturing story. Is Canada the, the near shoring, the friend shoring? It seems like an awful lot of things within the U.S. They also have their own policy that they're trying to ramp up. But what does it mean for other players? Is this an area you watch? It, so semiconductor manufacturing, that is, tends to be more tech analysts that, that will watch that sector. What I say is there's no semiconductor plants being built right. in Canada, and there are none here today. Um, How come? Good question. You'd have to ask, ask our tech, tech analysts. Analyst. Gotcha. Um, okay. But what I would say is, in general, some of these very large um, manufacturing plants, either semiconductor or automotive, you have seen some push out or deferral of the capital spend for those in the United States. And that's a function of maybe the demand not evolving to the same pace that these companies were predicting as they went through that. And that's also maybe a function of some of the political uncertainty you've heard some of the rhetoric from the leading Republican candidate about wanting to maybe claw back some of the subsidies under the Inflation Reduction Act. And that could have a meaningful impact on, on demand for electric vehicles in particular, or the pace of adoption there. Well, let's spend our last chunk of time going through valuations and and where they sit for, for the sectors that you're following and, and this, the companies themselves within it. Um, it's a big, big story for, for both of you. Let, I mean, I, I know the story, but I'll have you lay out what we've seen in terms of valuations for industrials. So that's probably one of the biggest negative points you could make about the industrials today in particular. Valuations for most companies are not particularly cheap. And so especially if you compare where interest rates are, the risk-free rate is in the market versus the valuation for some of these companies, the market's embedding in some cases, a few years of above normal growth, especially for some of the companies that are thematic winners, like the companies helping with decarbonization or benefiting from government spending tailwinds. On the contrary, there are pockets of value in the market still. So the perceived losers from an economic cycle rolling over, a lot of those types of companies are trading at quite low multiples or the freight companies that have seen a year of negative demand valuations optically might not look cheap, but you have to consider that maybe the earnings number is depressed relative to a normal level. So that's our job as analysts to sort out where might there be a discrepancy versus expectations, our view of reality or what's reasonable in the year to find those alpha generate. Okay. Do you see um, broadly the story changing into the next year? Um, or is it more idiosyncratic? Yeah, I, I think that it's more uh, company specific. That's tend to how we look at things as analysts. Yeah. We have to be aware of what's going on in the broader market. I do think that there's a potential for the narrative around certain subsectors to change meaningfully over the next year based on you know what happens in the broader economy as well as what happens from a policy perspective with, with the election. Okay, fascinating. And Claire, valuations within materials, take take us into sort of where it sits and the components going forward. Mm -hmm. And valuations can vary a lot amongst the subsectors I cover. Um, even thinking back, though, to when we were last on Fidelity Connects um, a few months ago, I think there was definitely a lot more optimism reflected in the valuations of the companies I was covering, thinking that with lower rates, there was more optimism about a potential soft landing um, interest rates were lower, and you also had some rumors um, about M&A within uh, certain subsectors that was supporting higher valuations as well. I think 
um, for some companies, we've definitely seen that come off in the past few months, and that can help to create some opportunities for portfolio managers on our team, given that it's sometimes tough to find those great opportunities when expectations are a lot higher. So I think we're really using this time to focus on trying to find the companies that have good balance sheets that could withstand a slowdown scenario, even if we don't know exactly when an inflection point might come, and also trying to spend more time on some of the more idiosyncratic companies within my coverage group, um, where you have visibility on maybe a new project coming online or other driver of improved free cash flow generation over the medium term that um, could support better valuation metrics on a free cash flow basis uh, across my coverage group. Special situations. Special situations in the group. And and this is sort of the question of do the big get bigger um, question Uh, with interest rates where they are. One of the stories in a lot of different areas, maybe not yours as much, but um, is that there are certain players that would be consolidators. I'm I'm thinking mostly venture capital, you know, how they would be very levered players. There's less of those. Do you see the bigger companies in each of your coverage areas being in a position to consolidate, to buy other companies? Is that a theme going forward? It's a very big theme in a lot of areas of industrials. So we can point to the engineering and consulting space where Canadian companies are actually amongst the largest engineering consulting firms globally and have strategies to continue to consolidate that market. They're vision is they look at the big four accounting firms and say, why can't engineering firms be like that? And so the big will likely to continue to get bigger there. There's more niche growth by acquisition industrials in Canada that have a very good mousetrap for uh, adding value through M&A that will likely continue to do so. And then just from in the information services space, there's this paradigm shift to AI and generative AI and what could that mean for their business models and also maybe efficiency benefit potential for their customers. I'm guessing in that paradigm shift that the biggest companies will benefit the most from that due to ability to invest. And so that's a big getting bigger dynamic as well, but probably more from an organic perspective. Okay, interesting. It, are there subtleties for materials? Is it is it as organic in the same way? Does it exist? I think there's some impacts or opportunities for some of the more um, defensive subsectors um, within my coverage that are consolidators. Mm-hmm. And part of their strategy is they think they can get attractive returns by um, rolling up or consolidating some of the smaller peers within their industry. And sometimes over the past few years with really low interest rates, that was challenging to find those opportunities because there was so much competition from whether that's private equity or other buyers that could finance those acquisitions with higher levels of leverage that made it tough to find um, opportunities um, for companies that didn't apply as much leverage or at higher return thresholds um, when interest rates were low. So now that we've seen higher interest rates impacting the ability of some other peers to participate in those processes or look at um, acquiring those targets, it might create some of the opportunities for companies in my coverage group with good balance sheets to find those smaller acquisitions that can add value over the longer term. I feel like there'll be a lot to catch up on when we speak next time as well. Claire and Bobby, I'd like to speak to you both. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor 
or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.